Hi, Chris Valentin here. Welcome to my podcast, where I hope to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience God's goodness in every area of your life. I hope you enjoy this message today. And if you're looking for more resources, check out chrisvalentin.com. So why don't you grab a hand and we'll pray. Yes, you can get a date too. So I thought what we do from now on is multitask, so we can pray and get a date at the same time, or we can pray for a date. <laughs> so I don't want to disappoint you, because when you say I was preaching, oh, Chris is preaching tomorrow, we're going to get a date, so you know, I want to make sure you have an opportunity. So Holy Spirit, we thank you for what you're doing. We bless what you're doing. A little less over there, we bless. <laughs> and we, we pray... For you to give us extraordinary wisdom tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had a different message for you, but I changed it in the middle of worship, so we'll see how that goes. Turn to John 15. I want to talk to you about moving from slavery to friendship. And um, I have it right here in my... John 15, we'll just start from verse 1. I'm sure these are passages that you're probably really familiar with. So, uh, you know, I'm finding that, I'm finding hidden treasures in secret places of familiarity. <laughs> I don't know about you, but have you, I'm, I've been reading the Bible since I was 18, mostly every day since I was 22. And, um, and yet, I go back to passages that I've read over and over and over again, especially recently. I was reading the book of I'm going through the book of Acts this week, and I'm finding things there. I, I'm, I'm telling you, I don't even remember they were there before. And uh, so I find sometimes that we, you know, sometimes it's not new actions, but renewed actions. You know, Jesus told the disciples, place your nets on the other side of the boat. And I'm, I'm thinking they probably fished both sides of the boat, means they fished all night. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what a great idea. Why didn't we think of that? You know, we only fished on one side of the boat, you know. But sometimes it's not a new action. Sometimes we're looking for a new revelation or a new action, and sometimes it's just doing the same thing you've done again, you know. So John 15 um, is a very familiar portion of Scripture, but I really feel like we're supposed to uh, look at it with uh, new eyes. Verse 1, I'm the vine, true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. The word clean is the same word prune. Because of the word which I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I am him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be his disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that, your, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
This is the commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. But I call you friends for all things I've heard from the Father I've made known to you. I just want to stop there and just um, take this uh, piece by piece. Um, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And then did you notice that there was two um, ways um, that you can that you are in the vine. One is that you get cut off, and the other is that you get pruned. <laughs> Did you notice that there's, that was the only two options? <laughs> like, either way, you're going to get cut. <laughs> the question is, how far back is Jesus cutting you? And um, years ago, uh, many, many years ago, when I was 15 years old, my uncle, Sally, had a vineyard. And uh, I, I worked on the vineyard just a little bit once in a while. My grandfather, that I tell stories about all the time, and my uncle were very, very close. And my grandfather had a farm I lived on, and my uncle had, as I said, a vineyard. that They were, uh, they were in two different cities about 100 miles apart. So um, sometimes I'd go with my grandfather to my uncle's vineyard, and my uncle would put me to work for the day. I, I didn't know anything about vineyards and didn't care to know anything about vineyards. At 15 years old, I didn't understand what I was doing. But my uncle would give me some uh, kind of uh, trimmers, snips, and we would go out and we would trim the, the vines. And uh, I, I honestly was not paying any attention. I just did what I was told, didn't think through it. But, uh, but one of the things that I understood by pruning the vines, um, ha- how many of you actually have ever af- walked through a vineyard, not saw a picture of it, but you've actually walked through a vineyard, okay? So this is the way a vineyard works, if you have it. Like you have the vine and grapes, you know that's what you want, vines and grapes, right? But this is what happens with a vine. If you let a vine grow and you don't prune it back, what happens is, you'll, you'll, you'll notice it'll look like this. There'll be some, uh, there'll be uh, fruit, you know, let's just say, let's say uh, maybe three or four feet long if you, take, if you took the vine out and stretch it out. There'll be fruit like four or five feet, be grapes on the vine, and then, you, and then there'll be leaves, and this is the way it looks, and then there'll be a stick that's alive. <laughs> and that stick can be literally, I've seen this, you know, that I prune, and I, I, there's probably lots of different kinds of grapes, but I prune sticks that are 15 foot long that there's nothing on them. There's no leaves, there's no grapes, they look dead. When you cut them, they're alive, but they look dead. And what happens in a, in a, in a vineyard, if you don't prune the vine, the, the nature of that kind of plant is that it will extend itself to the place where it will actually stop producing grapes and leaves to extend the stick. <laughs> so when you, you, what you do is you cut it back to its fruitfulness, so that it uses this energy to produce fruit instead of a stick. Now, of course, Jesus is talking to people in obviously the agricultural age. So when Jesus uses these analogies, uh, in our day, you know, a third of the room have never seen a vineyard. But, in, of course, in Jesus' day, that would be very odd that you, you wouldn't have seen a vineyard. And so he's talking to them in terms that would be really relevant to them. Like, I have to explain to you how vines work, but of course in Jesus' day, everyone would have known that. 
And so he's telling them that, the, that if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But listen to this. This part, I'm sorry, I misquoted where I was going. Uh, so he says, your, I, uh, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. So well, one of the things you do is if the, if the branch has no fruit on it, in other words, you let it go too long and it just grew and grew and grew and grew and you, you know, like cut it back to its place of fruit. Well, some, some, some of the vines don't have any fruit on them because they overextend themselves to a place where they stop producing fruit where you have to cut that back to the vine. Are you with me? And the ones that have produced fruit, will, you cut those back to the fruitfulness. And then Jesus says this, which I think is uh, interesting. So he says that, he talks about pruning. In fact, let me, I'm sorry, let me read it one more time. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may, so that it may bear more fruit. Listen to the next verse. You are already clean, the words pruned, because of the word which I spoke to you. So he just said, here's how I prune. I talk to you. Now, it's probably starting to make some sense already. I bet your minds are already working. This is a very intelligent group of people here. I mean it sincerely. Like, this is the most brilliant class we've ever had. So I'd imagine you're already thinking of the ramifications of your own life. But Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to trim you back to your fruitfulness. If you don't have fruitfulness in your life, I'm going to trim you right back to the vine so that you can grow again. Right? And, and here's uh, some of the points. If your life gets overextended, you'll stop producing fruit. And I'd like to propose to you that there is a grace to see how long of a vine you can grow in the world. There are things like likes on Facebook or on Twitter that are vine-growing contests that have nothing to do with fruit. There is pressure in the world to look the best, have the best image, have the best this, have the best that, that are all extension of the vine that have nothing to do with fruit. There is pressure in, um, in our cultures, and I say cultures, American culture, European culture, even African culture, first, third world, second world, I see it everywhere, it's human nature to compete for who has the largest, the longest vine contest and forget that your life is fruitless. There are races to see who can be the busiest and I'd like to propose, if you're lost, it matters not how fast you drive. There are things in culture that are pressing against our souls, and they are so a part of our culture that we often don't stop and check and see, is this part of the vine I'm a part of, or part of the world I'm producing fruit, supposed to be producing fruit in? I don't think I said that right. Sometimes we have these pressures on our soul and we don't stop to question because everyone's doing it we don't stop to question whether or not this is a vine word or a world word this is not forward movement 
the Israelites were lost in the wilderness and they were going around and around. It doesn't matter how fast you do this or who gets there first. You're still freaking lost. There is so much pressure to be nowhere first. I'm going to get to the top of that mountain before you do. Yes, but the question is, did the Lord tell you to climb that mountain? That's the question. And I think when the Lord says, you're already pruned by my word, he's not, okay, well, I know, I need to change my attitude. Let me change my voice. (laughs) Often when the Lord says, (laughs) my wife's got that, you have your, your intense face on. I'm like, I feel intense right now. We like the, I love testimonies. I love the, Jesus loves you, you're so amazing, you're the greatest, you're awesome, you're smarter than you look. I like all that stuff, you know. And you're beautiful, you know. But the word that he's talking about here, he says, if you keep my commandments, then you're my friend. And the word the Lord's talking about here. When he says, you already are pruned by my word, he's not talking about the kumbaya word. He's talking about that don't do that. Hey, what's going on with that attitude? He's talking about the word that reminds you that that is fruitless. (laughs) Are are you with me? He's talking about when the Lord has the, the... when you have invited the Lord into your life to a place where he has permission to talk to you about the fruitless parts of your life, and you don't just listen, you hear. Or maybe I should say you don't just hear, you listen. Whatever way you say it, I'm talking about that you make a change. Are you with me? I'm saying that the Lord can say, hey, that ministry you're in, Yeah, you forgot to ask me about that. And you're like, I'm doing good. And he's like, but are you doing God? I'd propose for most of us in this room, and I would raise both my hands, that I no longer measure my life by that's good and that's bad. That was my early years. Like, don't do that, that's bad. I'm not saying never have a bad moment. But most of my life is not about good and bad. I'm saying bad is typically not keeping me from good. Not ever, but mostly. Mostly, my, the greatest enemy I have is good. Good is killing me. Good is keeping me from God. What keeps me from amazing, doing amazing stuff, is doing good stuff. I'm not doing anything wrong. How many times have you told yourself that? I'm not doing anything wrong. Listen, when you get to this place in the Lord, it's not about not doing wrong stuff. It's about doing God's stuff. I know what I'm trying to say. 
I know. Well, don't clap yet. You haven't heard the rest of the word. It's going to get worse first. <laughs> Proverbs says, The ways of a man are clean in his own sight. This is Proverbs 16.2. But the Lord weighs the motives. Like the Lord doesn't just care that you do the right thing. He cares that you do it for the right reason. <laughs> you know, giving somebody a gift with strings attached is not honor. It's manipulation. I can't tell you how many times it happens in my life, and it probably happens in yours too, where someone gives me, I really, really don't like big gifts very often. And Kathy can tell you it's absolutely true. I'm like, what did that just cost me? Someone will give us a big gift, and then they'll be like, hey, can you come to my conference? I'm like, earnestly, I would often just like to return the gift because I really don't want to be owned by anyone. Someone this week gave me a gift in a conference, and I'm like, oh, thank you. Like, yeah, it's for your wife, and like, good. And then they spent, you know, for, for every, nearly every session coming like, can I have a half an hour with you? And, I, and I'm like, I, you, know, it, you know, it's conference time. I'm running the conference, so it isn't just about time. It's about soul. Like, I only have so much soul, and, and I need it to make sure that the people who came hungry get a piece of me. So I can't give it all out. Because sometimes I have enough time, but I don't have any more soul. Do you know? I'm supposed to be operating on overflow. So I, I do guard my heart pretty. And so I, I check with a couple of people, and they're like, oh, that guy's been going around to everybody. He gives gifts away, and he tries to get time because he's selling things on the Internet. He wants your endorsement. And I'm like, that's just, that's just witchcraft. If you give somebody, I, I had someone paint me a, a painting a while back. This is a while ago, like a few years ago, so it wouldn't be anybody in here. And it, it, it was a nice painting, it was all fine. But earnestly, I've received so many paintings, and Kathy has too, that well, I don't have any more walls left. Tr truly, some of these folks in the front row have been in my house. Like, I don't have any more walls for paintings. And so about six months later, or no, it's probably three months later, he wrote me and said, have you put my painting up? And I said, no. And then he wrote me about a year later. And so what I did is I gave it away. And it was a pretty nice painting, and a couple of my team liked it, so I, I gave it to them. You gave it to me. It should be mine. So then a year later, he wrote me and said, have you put my painting up? And I said, no, I haven't. I'm really sorry. And he said, well, then I'd like to have it back. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I don't know how to tell you this. <laughs> but I, I, I don't even think that you're giving it to me with strings attached, so I'm sorry that you... You know, when you gave it to me, it was mine. So I was, and, and I'm simply, and all I'm trying to uh, point out really is not even about giving or anything. I'm talking about motives. Like, why are you doing what you're doing? I, I don't mind taking selfies with people. You know, I, I'm not photogenic, so I'm like, oh, oh, there's a hair sticking out of my nose and it's on Facebook, you know. Uh, but but I also I, so did you hear what I said? I don't I don't want, like I don't want no one to feel weird about it. But sometimes we do things so that we can tell other people on our social pages how important we are. Look, I must be important. I took a picture with Bill. I'm not saying that's most people's motive, but I'm just saying it happens. And I've had people use me on their Facebook page to validate their book. Like, Chris, can, you, can I hold my book while you're... What? 
I haven't even read your book. Like, I mean, your book could be cultic. What do I know about your book, you know? And, and the content, I mean, there's nothing, uh, I mean, the ones I'm thinking about right now, there's nothing under there like Chris Vallot endorsed my book. It's just you're holding their book, and it's, the connotation is he's endorsing my book. I'm like, no, I was walking through the crowd, and they said, can I take a picture with you? And I'm like, sure, okay. And they hold their book up and do a selfie, and I'm like, what the crap is that? This stuff is crazy, guys. This is the pressure of trying to have an image that's not real. Image is related <laughs> to idols. We have American Idol and all this idol stuff. It's just so blatant now. We used to, when I was a kid, you used to not, I mean, you had the same heart. You just, like everybody knew you weren't supposed to do it. Now it's like American Idol. Let me just tell you who I idolize. I, have, I don't know how many Justin Bieber people I have on, on my Twitter page that represent themselves as Justin Bieber. I'm like, Justin Bieber's following me. Well, that'd be interesting. And I get on there, and the guy, he only has 12 followers. I'm like, it's probably not him, you know? I mean, I just like, why not just be you? You know, the problem is, is that you are, you are really bad Justin Bieber. And now you're not you. So now you, you know, Beatles sang this song, Nowhere Man Can You See Me At All. So it's like, if I try to be someone else, I suck at being them. But then because I'm trying so hard, I suck at being me. And I end up in nowhere man. I end up in a nowhere man in nowhere land. Play my nowhere plans for nobody, as John Lennon wrote. <laughs> Sorry, some of you I tell you the lyrics because you obviously have not heard that really. I know I hate when I get on on the radio and I'm listening to the oldies and it's 90s. I'm like, no, no, that's not old. No, no, that ain't happening, dude. These are the things the Lord's pruning out of our life. Listen, forget your image and work on your reputation. Your reputation will take you places your image can't take you. And by the way, when you work on your image, what happens is, is that you don't let people see into you. You can't do intimacy because you're plastic. And there's this intense fear that happens when you build an image without a reputation that people are going to figure out that you're not real. You're living a Photoshop life with virtual reality. I'm, I'm just trying to say this is the culture we live in. I put my best picture on, on, on Facebook. Everybody does that. But then I Photoshop the picture to make me look skinnier or younger or whatever. The people see you, they're like... Wow, your brother's on, you know. <laughs> well, that was your daughter on, the, on your picture. My, oh, that was me, you know. Listen, I, I'm not saying be ugly. I, I forget what famous preacher said, even an old barn looks good with a coat, you know, whitewashed. I'm not saying look ugly. I'm just saying what... I mean, all of us, like I do the same, you know, like you get up in the morning and you don't, you know, you, you, you brush your teeth and 
men shave and girls pluck and, <laughs> you know, whatever they do. I don't know what they do. But, you know, we spend a half an hour to an hour doing it. Like, uh, and, then, and then we say people, then we say things like, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. <laughs> like, you know, be self-aware. I'm not talking about self-absorbed. I realize there's a fine line between being self-aware and self-absorbed. But realize you didn't sit in the mirror for an hour because you didn't care what anyone thinks about you. <laughs> right? I mean, and it's good bringing the best you. It's good. Like, bring the best you everywhere you go. Bring the best you, you know. But all that stuff is mostly things that the Lord's pruning. Okay. Thank you, Chris. So let me just give you a few things that should be pruned. Self-promotion. You can promote yourself beyond the promise. How many of you know if you humble yourself, the Lord will exalt you? And how many of you know that when whoever the Lord promotes, he protects? Whoever the Lord promotes, he protects. And I'm not, just, I'm not talking about demons right now. I'm talking about like if the Lord gives you a house... If the Lord gives it to you, he is provision. He is pro his vision. If he gives you a house, he'll provide for it. But you're like, you know what? We can get this house. Like, if you work an extra 10 hours and I work an extra four, you know, we can just about make that payment for our children. We need this big house for our children. And what happens is your children grow up with the babysitter. <laughs> because the house was not provision. It was keep up with the Joneses and make sure everybody knows I'm got going on. I'm like, I tell you, your kids aren't they're not gonna care what house they grow up in. They're gonna care if their parents were there though. I'm saying these are values. That the world tells us we got to have. And it's fine. You know, I have a very nice house. You know that? I have a beautiful house. It's all, it's, you know, now it's paid for. But it, I mean, living beyond our means is part of the competition thing that we, I'm just trying to say, like, we don't even know we're doing it because everyone's doing it. And like, if everyone's doing it, it must be okay. And we get involved in, in like, you know, we have credit debt that's like, crazy because we you know we go out to lunch when we can't pay our bills and we tell our you know our uh, the person we owe money to we, we, we're going to be late because we we had starbucks 15 days that week that month and there went the hundred dollars i needed to make the payment it's like no no your reputation is much more important than your image Sometimes you have to sacrifice your image for your reputation. Okay, I'll give you a few more and then we'll, it's going to get better at the end. I planned it all so like it goes good at the end. <laughs> uh, uh, let me give you a few more. Competition, revenge. Mm -hmm. 
Doing things out of bitterness. Doing things to get back at people. Okay. James 1 says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Um, I mean, I, don't, I haven't got there like, Yay! <laughs> Honey, we get to go through another trial. This. <laughs> Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you may be found perfect and lacking nothing. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men without reproach. But let him ask without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea being driven and tossed by the wind. Let that man think he'll receive nothing from God, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. You know, did you know that the book of James is the only book that actually calls Christians sinners? Chapter 3, weep and wail, you sinners. People write me all the time, like, you said you're not a sinner. Well, I mean, a hundred times God calls us saints. At one time, he calls us a sinner. You know who he calls sinners? People who are double-minded. I'm living in both worlds. <laughs> I'm double, I, I'm actually, I actually have two minds. And he says that trials, they don't test our character, they test our faith. So when I go through stuff, it's like, who do I trust? And Okay, let's go on. I think I, I know I hear weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> so here's the question. Can the Lord speak a corrective word to you? Can he use a sister or brother to do it? Because oftentimes we're unconsciously ignorant. We don't even know that we don't know. Right? You know deception. I said this to you first year of school ministry. All of you are school ministry since I say it every year. If you don't trust someone more than you trust yourself, then you can't get out of deception because the nature of deception is you don't know you're deceived. If you know you're deceived, it's not called deception. It's called the spirit is stupid. How many of you have had that on you? I certainly have. <laughs> I'm going to do this wrong and then ask for permission, ask for forgiveness later, right? Like the chocolate I ate right before I came here. Okay, so what is the reward for abiding? Abide in me and I am you as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself lest it abides in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I am him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up. Gather them, cast them into the fire. If you abide in me, listen to this, and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Dude, that is the great verse. I, I have a book, I'm going to write it someday, I already have it outlined called wishful thinking. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. How many of you would like to have a relationship with God where you could ask anything you wish, and it will be done for you? That's what Jesus said. He said, you could ask whatever you wish. How many of you have asked things that you wished, and it didn't happen? That tells me that you, <laughs> and I, us all, 
have a way to go because I don't get everything I wish. But Jesus said I could. I could actually develop a relationship with the Father that whatever I wanted, he would give to me. And it begins with abiding in me and my word abides in you. So let me just do a little bit of that for a moment. Words. Let's do the simple part. Do you read your Bible? <laughs> I mean, do you understand what you have in front of you? I mean, do you know that for thousands of years, the average person did not even have a Bible? I mean, and if they had it for another thousands of years, they couldn't read it anyway. Because they're completely illiterate. And we have it, in, like, on my, on my iPad, I have it in 47 languages. I'm in mean, 47 versions. I can look up word studies and know what would have taken me before there was computers just, you know, 20 years ago, before there was computer programs 25 years ago. I mean, to, to look up Greek words and concordances and follow it all out. You're talking about a, two, a day and a half project, eight, seven, eight hours to prepare a message if you wanted to do any Greek studies. I can literally Google it, what, I, what took me six, seven hours in a concordance and a in a Greek lexicon, I can Google it and know more than I knew in a seven, eight hour study about that verse, that word. Really uh, reputable people talking about the history of it or the Greek meaning or the Hebrew. You know, you get the idea. It's like, like sometimes things come too easy is the point. Uh, I'm, an, I'm going off subject here, but I'm going to go there for a moment. The greatest challenge, and one of the greatest challenges I have in my life right now is my grandchildren. They're doing great. I love them. And how do you give something to someone for free, and how do you have them value what they didn't have to fight or work for? It's the greatest challenge. It's why you go into, uh, it's why you see rental houses are, you know, if you go, like, if you drive through any big city, you can see where the rental houses stop and the owned houses start by the way people take care of their yards. If, they, if you didn't work for it, you tend to not care about it. But Jesus said this. He said, if you don't take care of what's, what is someone else's, who will give you your own? So this is the thing about my word abides in you. It's like, do you actually read the Bible? Like, do you actually take time to actually know what the Bible says? And I understand in our culture, we're going to take that deeper. We're going to say, do you, take, do you spend time with God? Do you actually listen? Do you give, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I, you know, I'll, if, I'll do whatever God tells me to do. Well, you're going to have to, like, take a few minutes every day to stop and know what he's saying to you. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Okay, I'm not trying to beat you up. I am just trying to say, like, we live in a culture that has a value system that isn't God's. But because so many people have it, it feels right. So when the 12 spies come back and 10 spies say, the land is like, we shouldn't go there. It's full of giants. We're all going to die. And only two people said, no, no, this is a, those guys will be our daily bread. 
How many know the two were right and the ten were wrong? But the ten created a culture. And consequently, everyone who heard the ten people's message that day with Mo on the ground, they all died in the wilderness without receiving the promise. The only people who went into the promised land were Caleb and Joshua. And God promised 1.5 million people approximately. They gave them a word. You're going from Egypt to the promised land. And almost every one of them died in the land of just enough. When God had the land of more than enough for them. And here's why they didn't go in. Are, get this? Are you with me? They didn't go in because they did not, Hebrews, I'm telling you what Hebrew writers said about them, the commentary on them, is that they did not obey the word of the Lord because they did not add faith to what God said to them. That's the pruning. So I look around and I'm like, well, 10, you know, 80% of the people I hang with are doing it this way. Yeah, and they're all wrong. All of them. But they're the people of God. So were the Israelites. But these people experienced miracles. So did they. They crossed the Red Sea on dry land. You get the, they had a cloud by day and a, and a fire by night. These people lived in miracles. And the people who lived in miracles did not abide in God's word. They did not do what God told them to do. And they did not come into the promises because they disobeyed. I'm saying, let me just say it this simple, and then I'll move on. I'm sorry. I, I know, I'm, I feel myself laboring, and, and Kathy says, ranting. I'm ranting. <laughs> so let me say, you may be thinking, he's ranting. And I, I know I am, so I'm very self-aware at this moment. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll move off of this when I say this. Just because it's common... doesn't mean it's right. Question reality. Now, if your neighbors got a relationship with God, some of your students, and they're asking whatever they wish, and they're getting it, then I'm like, listen to them. <laughs> but if they're stuck in the same wilderness you're stuck in, I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't, maybe not. Are you following me? Okay, so let's go on. Thank you, Chris. Sheesh. Got a flat tire right there. <laughs> this is my commandment that you love one another. Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friend. doesn't say he lays down his friend for his life. <laughs> Let me understand. A lot of people like to tell the truth, but it's telling, you know, you know what I mean? Speaking the truth in love is a lot different than loving to speak the truth. You are my friends if you do what I commanded to you. There it goes again. Now we're going to talk about moving out of slavery in the friendship. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you to do. So let me say this. The foundation of friendship, you should write this down. This is probably the most important point. If you want to become a friend, if you're saying, I'd like to move out of just obeying, I'd like to move out of, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm a slave to Christ, and you'd like to move into friendship, here's number one. First, you have to be a good slave. A lot of people trying to be friends, but they've never been a good slave. If you do what I command you, then you qualify for the friendship upgrade. No longer do I call you slaves, 
This is the fun part. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. Listen to this. For all things I have heard from my father, I made known to you. So this is the part I love. I no longer call you a slave because a slave does not, not what? No. A slave does not know. What does a slave know? He knows, he, he, he knows a command, but he doesn't know why he's doing it. So when you come to the Lord, the highest place of life in slavery is obedience. The Lord told me that there's going to be a man that has a plaid shirt and a fishing hat on, and he's got a problem with his back. How many know that's good? And I want you, and the Holy Spirit told me to go pray for him. How many know that's obedience? And we have obedience camps where we learn obedience. We're like in obedience training, like, you know, like my dog. We, we put this electric collar on my dog, and he becomes born again. That's amazing. Which, you know what, it kind of makes me mad, because we have a big German shepherd, he's, and it, when he acts one way with the collar on, and another way without it, which tells me he knows the right thing to do. <laughs> right? He knows the right thing to do, because when he puts the collar on, you put the collar on, he knows what he's supposed to do, because he acts totally differently. If I know I'm going to be punished, I do the right thing, that's still slavery. When I'm doing things so I don't, so things don't get wrong, don't go wrong in my life, I'm still a slave. So the highest level of life in slavery is obedience. But I don't get to be a friend until I do obedience really well. And we actually celebrate, and listen, we should, so I'm making light of it a little bit. And the only reason I'm making light of it is because there's a higher place. But we have slave contests to see who could be the best slave. Well, I, 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 the Lord told me this morning to get up, and I got up, and he said, you're going to meet three people at the bus stop, go now, da-da-da, and we got these prophetic words of knowledge, and we go there, and it's exactly as we said, and we're like, awesome, and we're like, awesome, great slave, you did exactly what the Holy Spirit told you to do, and how many know, that's great, because until you become a great slave, you can't be a friend, but that's not the highest level of life. So then he says, I no longer call you slaves. He's speaking to his 12 disciples. Remember, he already said, I got to prune you. So we're talking about 12 people that he's speaking to. Of course, uh, we have Judas in the mix there. But we have 12 people that Jesus is speaking to. And he said, you're already pruned because of the word I spoke to you. So he's saying to them, and obviously later he talks about Judas, da, da, da. So we'll just say 11. He's talking to the 11, and he's saying, for you guys, you guys... I'm, now I am inviting you into friendship because you let me prune you. Are you with me? And that means all things I have heard from the Father I've made known to you. You know what I think is unique about Bethel? In my mind, I could be completely wrong. I wouldn't be completely wrong because I'm right. People come here and they, they, they hear Bill. And I, I love this because I hear the same comment over and over for 40 years. Like, where does he get that stuff? And Bill will quote Jesus verbatim. And they'll be like, wow, where did you get that? I'm like, the Bible. 
And Bill will quote verses everyone's read forever, right? And then he'll make a little comment or the way he reads it or the way he puts the emphasis on a certain place that doesn't have a comma, but he puts it there. (laughs) And before he even speaks, you're like, it's amazing, where did he get that? And I want to tell you, for those who haven't been around that long, like that's been on him since Kathy and I met him 40 years ago. I remember the very first time Bill ever spoke in Weaverville. Yes, Weaverville. There was 40 of us. And it's a Pentecostal church. You know the yeah? And hallelujah and ho ho. I mean, we didn't even know what to do with a young hippie who stands behind the podium the entire hour and talks. He's not funny in those days. He just talks. And then three quarters of the church is weeping. Like, where did this man get these gracious words that are falling on us? Mm, he needs to be reading the Bible. But here's the point I'm making. There is a spirit of revelation on him. It's Ephesians. I'm going to read it to you. Sorry, am I going too long? I don't even, what time we finish? Okay. <laughs> so funny, about four months ago, Eric said, would you like to come in and speak to our leaders for an hour? And, you know, maybe you could, like, speak for 15 or 20 minutes and then let them ask you questions on the core team. I'm like, yeah, be great. I talked for 55 minutes. He leans over and he goes, you know, there's five minutes left to have a question and answer time. I said, I thought you gave me an hour. He goes, yeah, you spoke for 55 minutes. I'm like, holy crap. I honestly didn't even know it. Listen to this. That the God of the Lord Jesus Christ may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. I actually, There's another verse here, but I, I'm not going to take time to find it. But I, I believe that Bill has the spirit of revelation. And I think that he got it by moving from slavery to friendship. Like all things I've heard from the Father made known to you, I think you move. I don't think the spirit of revelation is a gift. I think it's a position. I think you move from slavery where you... you, I no longer call you a slave because the slave does not know what his master's doing. I think when you move from slavery to friendship, what you call that, what you're experiencing is... Revelation, God goes, okay, let's pull back the covers. Now, let me show you why I had you do that. Let me show you why I had you meet that man with the fishing cap and the plaid shirt. Let me show you why we did that. And all of a sudden, you enter into another level of relationship with God where you're actually dreaming with God, thinking with God, and you start to, and you start to take on his mind. And now I moved out of slavery and I moved into a place where I'm actually co-laboring with Christ. I'll talk so long about other things. I'm just going to have to tell you some of the stories. Joseph, uh, this is Genesis 41 if you're taking notes. Genesis 41 and Genesis 47. Write those two chapters down. I'm just going to tell you about them quickly. These are chapters you know about. Joseph interprets a dream for Pharaoh. It's been told so many times in our culture. I know you know the story. 
and he has a, he, the Pharaoh has a dr- uh, dream of fat calves and skinny calves, and I'm um, sorry, the fat calves ate the skinny calves. Is that right? Yes, it is. Seven fat calves and seven skinny calves. And the fat calf, right, did I say it right? The, uh, the skinny calves ate the fat calves, right? The point is, is that Joseph interprets the dreams, and the, the dream, actually two dreams, and he interprets the dreams as there's going to be seven years of plenty and there's going to be seven years of famine. Yeah, and the, fam- the years of famine eat, are going to eat up all the seven years of plenty. And then, and then he tells Pharaoh, this is what I would do. So Pharaoh says, well, what should I do? And he said, here's what you should do. You should, keep, you should store 20% away, one-fifth, 20%, have, everyone, have all the people bring 20% of their, their grain to Pharaoh and store it for seven years. And then sell it back to the people in the next seven years. Now, that's a beautiful story. I love Joseph. But here's what happened. In the 47th chapter, we're in the fifth year of the famine. So we have now moved forward. You, you understand, I just took you through five chapters with that little comment. So obviously there's a lot in there. Verse 13. Now there was no food in the land because the famine was so severe. So, the land, um, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan for grain, which they bought, and Joseph brought the money to Pharaoh's house. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph, saying, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give me your livestock, and I'll give you food for your livestock, since, there is no, since your money's gone. So they brought him livestock, and it goes on like this. Then the next year, they used up all their livestock, and now there's still two years left. So actually, this is the, the third year, the fourth year, and now we're in the fifth year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the next year, and they said, well, we're not going to hide anything from our Lord. Our money is all spent. Our cattle are the Lord's, and there's nothing left except our bodies and our lands. Verse 19, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our, uh, and our land, for, I'm sorry, buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die. And it goes on to say, so Joseph enslaved all of Egypt. Okay, what does that have to do with John 15? In John 15, they move from slavery to friendship through revelation. Joseph takes a, third, a first world country, actually the wealthiest country at the time, or at least one of three wealthiest countries at the time was Egypt. Joseph takes a first world country and he turns it into a third world country. He takes people who are free and he enslaves them. The entire, an entire nation is enslaved. Why? Because he gives revelation to the king and withholds it from everyone else. The king was the only one who knew there would be seven good years and seven bad years. Think about this. If Joseph actually used wisdom and not just knowledge, he could have enriched Egypt so that every citizen was incredibly wealthy. All he had to do is tell Pharaoh, let's tell the people about, the, about your dream. 
Let's tell them there will be seven good years and seven bad years. But what did they do? They treated the people like slaves and they withheld information. And what happened? They all became slaves. But you know what happened? In, in Exodus chapter 1, Exodus opens like this. There rose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And what did he do? He enslaved the Israelites for 400 years. Joseph enslaved the Egyptians. And the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. And what I'm getting at is, think about this. Think about some of the poorest countries in the world, some places in Africa and India. And for some of us that have worked, I haven't worked in India, only in Africa, some of the poor countries in Africa. And, and, and billions of dollars are being poured into uh, uh, African nations, some of the poor African nations from some of the wealthiest countries in the world. And yet, they are rare, they rarely improve much. And I'd like to propose that most of what's wrong is rooted in the fact that they're slaves and not friends. Think about this, and if you're from Africa, I, I, please forgive me if the analogy is painful. Uh, America has, all of, has its problems, obviously. You live here, so you know that. But as a continent, Africa is the richest continent in the world in natural resources. But it's the poorest continent in the world in GDP, gross national product. The point is, is that the problem in Africa is not money. It's revelation. Here's the, here's the good news. You could change a continent if you changed the relationship. Like, this isn't just about you becoming friends. This is about moving from slavery to friendship. Because if you move from slavery to friendship, how many know you know all things? And if the people of Egypt would have known about Pharaoh's dream, how many know they would have saved 20% instead of giving it to Pharaoh? And then when the nations around ran out of food, guess what? It wouldn't have been Pharaoh who became filthy rich. See what happened? Is it was already a first world nation, but Pharaoh got richer and richer and richer, and the people got poorer and poorer and poorer. Why did they do that? One simple fact. They didn't know what the king knew. You've been invited to friendship. But what friendship requires responsibility. Are you following me? I'm going to skip forward. There's lots of friends in, in God's world. Abraham was the first person to ever be called a friend of God. And you probably remember that God was going to destroy Sodom. And God comes to, to uh, Abraham and he said, shall I, um, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do since Abraham shall surely be a great and mighty nation and all the ends the nations of the earth shall, uh, in which all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And God begins to tell Abraham secrets that he's going to destroy Sodom. And what does Abraham do with the information? He doesn't go, yay God, get those nasty people, those terrible people. He begins to tell God, hey, should the judge of the earth judge the wicked and the righteous together? Well, that seems right. Far be it from God of the earth that he would judge the righteous and the wicked together. And Abraham feels empowered to argue with the God of the universe. Why? Because God has a friendship with Abraham. God tells Abraham secrets, 
But Abraham also tells God what he's thinking. And Abraham says, what if there's 50 righteous people? Then it gets to be 40 and 30. You get the idea. What's he trying to do? Of course, he's trying to save a lot in his family. But the point is, is that he feels confident to tell God that's a bad plan. And God says, well, if you can find 50 righteous, you can find 40 righteous, you can find 30 righteous, all the way down, I think it was to 10. The point is, is that God negotiates with Abraham because Abraham's his friend. In Exodus 32, God comes to Moses, who, said, who the Bible says that Moses spoke to God mouth to mouth as a man speaks to his friend. And God says to Moses, hey, Moses, the people are all worshiping a golden calf. While you were up here talking to me, go down there, and I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm you shall become a mighty nation. And Moses says to God, and God, I love this, I love this, I'm really thrashing it right now because I know you've been sitting so long. But Moses, God says to Moses, Moses, these people whom you led out of Egypt are stiff-necked, stubborn people, and I'm going to kill them. And make you a nation. And I love this part. And Moses goes, God, these are your people whom you let out of Egypt. <laughs> Remember the bush? Not George. <laughs> this was your idea. This was not my idea. And Moses goes on to tell God, God, if you kill these people in the wilderness, what are the Egyptians going to think? You know all those ones you drown? They're going to say, you took them into the wilderness to destroy them. And, God, and Moses argues with God. And it says this. I love this verse. And it says, uh, it's, uh, it says and God, verse 14 of chapter 32. So the, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he would do to his people. Now, I don't know what you th do with that. Like, how does God, who's totally sovereign, change his mind? Like, oh, you think, Mo, thank you so much for reminding you know, I'm glad you're around. I'm, I'm, I totally forgot about the covenant I made my, with my people. Thank you very much. I checked into it. And you're right about that. Yeah, I won't destroy them. Wow. Oh, boy. I almost made a big mistake there. I mean, like, what do you do with, with the sovereignty and God's brilliance when he changes his mind? How does Moses get God to change his mind? And I love this. In chapter 33, the next chapter, God comes back and he says, Moses, I checked into it. You're right. I did say I would lead. I would, I, would, I would give them a promised land, these Israelites. I would give them a promised land. I did say that. But I, I checked the fine print. I never said I would take them there. So I'm going to send an angel, and they will lead you into the promised land. Because if I go, here's what God says, because if I go, I'm going to kill them on the way. <laughs> Read it for yourself. And Moses said to God, God, you know what makes us different from all the other nations? Your presence. He says, I'd rather be in the wilderness with you than the promised land with an angel. So if you're not going, we're not going. And God goes, all right, I'm going. <laughs> Have you thought about that? I mean, most people would be, wouldn't even know that God wasn't with them if an angel was with them. I mean, as long as good things are happening, it doesn't have to be God things. And Moses is like, listen, if you're not going, we're not going. 
Moses is like, I don't care about the promotion or the Facebook, how many people like me on Facebook or how big the crowds are. Here's it. If you're not showing up, I'm not going. I don't care about my reputation. I don't care about my image, my reputation. I don't care about any of that. I just care about you being with you. I'd rather be with you and not have the promise happen than have the promise and not have you. This is what I think. Sometimes I think that God prophesies. Sometimes I think when God prophesies, he's not determining our destiny. He's checking our hearts. Let me say that again. I think sometimes, when you're, especially when you're moving out of slavery into friendship, I think sometimes the Lord prophesies to us not to determine our destiny, but determine our hearts. I think when God said to Moses, I'm going to kill all these people and I'm going to make you the king. I don't think he was determining Moses' destiny. I, was th- I think he was trying to figure out if he had a leader. And when he said, I'm going to send an angel in the promised land, I'm going to kill these people on the way. I don't think God wanted to kill the people. I think he wanted to figure out if Moses could really lead the people. And there's so much pressure to be right in our culture. Do you realize when God talked to Moses, that was a prophecy, right? And I'm saying, sometimes when God speaks to you, he's like, I'm going to wipe out San Francisco. It's like, yay God, go for it. But when you're in friendship with God, you go, oh, whoa, 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 back up the train. Lord, you wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked, would you? Like, it's not even in your heart to do that. Why did Jesus die on the cross if you're going to kill all those people? Lord, you died for the world. And I think sometimes the Lord is engaging us and saying, do I have a leader, not do I have a judge? And when David was in the wilderness, we know Saul was chasing him. And somewhere along the way, God spoke to David and said, I'm going to give your enemy into your hands. Do whatever you want to him. In second, I'm sorry, you guys all right? I know I'm late. In, in second Samuel 24, Saul is chasing David, and, he, and David's in a cave, and Saul doesn't know it. And he ends up in a cave with David. David's in a cave. I'm sorry, it's first Samuel 24. He ends up in a cave that David's in a cave with his mighty men. And Saul's going to the bathroom. He's sitting down going to the bathroom. And one of his mighty men say to David, this is that. Remember when the Lord said, I'm going to give your enemy into your hand, do whatever you want to him? This is it. And David says to his men, it says, and with great restraint, David restrained his men and said, far be it from me that I should touch God's anointed. So David cuts off a little piece of his garment. You'll remember it. When Saul gets clear of the cave, he says to Saul, I had you, the Lord gave me you. He put you in my hand. But I wouldn't touch God's anointed. Saul repents. Six months later, he's chasing him again. He's just about catching David. It says the, the, in verse, 1 Samuel 26, it says that, that Saul was pursuing David, and they nearly caught David. Then all of a sudden, at night, something happened. It says that a deep sleep from the Lord fell on all the Israeli army, including Saul and his armor bearer. A deep sleep from the Lord. Are you with me? They were slain in the spirit. David knows it, and he says to his mighty men, who wants to go down with me? And Abishai goes, I'll go. They get down there, 
And Saul's complete, all, all the army of Israel who's trying to kill David is asleep because the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on him. Abishai grabs Saul's armor bearer's sword and says, I'm going to thrust this through Saul's head. I'm just, I'm just going to do it one time. And David said, far from, be it from me that we should touch God's anointed. And David teaches his mighty men that just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because the Lord gave you permission doesn't mean he wants you to. And David moved from slavery into friendship with God. And the outcome of is, I wish I had a whole night to talk about the rest of this. The outcome of that is David builds a house for God, a, t- a tent, a tabernacle for God, puts the Ark of the Covenant in it, and 24 hours a day they worship God for 40 years, 42 years actually, 24-7. Now what you probably don't know is all they have is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament said that, uh, uh, told, the old, in the Old Testament God commanded Moses to put the Ark in the tabernacle of Moses, in which there was three compartments, and he could only, the tabernacle of Moses, I'm sorry, the tabernacle, I'm sorry, the Ark of the Covenant, did I say that? The Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, which the priest could only go in once a year with blood. They tied a rope around his butt, so if God killed him, they could get him out of there, because they literally couldn't even go in there if he died. If he sweat, if there was sweat on his brow, he was killed. That's the tabernacle of Moses. Now let me tell you something. The tabernacle of Moses was, on one, is, was in one city, still going, doing what the Bible told him to do. David takes the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God, takes it out of the tabernacle of Moses. Did you get that? What happens when the Spirit leaves? Religion. He puts it in a one-room porpoise tent, covered with porpoise skins. Sends the priest in. Now you got to understand, the priests know the Bible. They can read. Not everybody can. And you can imagine the first priest, David goes, okay, we're going to go in there, we're going to go 24-7, we're going to go, we're going to surround the ark and we're going to worship. You can imagine, the priest is like, uh, uh, king, uh, we got a problem over here in Deuteronomy. And you will remember that to get the ark from the tabernacle of Moses to the tabernacle of David, a guy died trying to get the ark there. Okay, you got that? Now we move forward, fast forward to the New Testament. In, in the book of Acts, I'm almost done. Chapter 15, the, the, the apostles have gathered for a particular cause. And in the midst of this cause, which, which takes too long to explain right now, James stands up and said, the prophets agree with this, and he quotes Amos 9. In the last days, I'll raise up, get this, the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. Think about this. The tabernacle of Moses was God's idea. The tabernacle of David was not God's idea. It was actually against the Bible. It was David's idea. And God goes, Let's do that thing that guy wanted to do. Let's do the thing that the man after my heart wanted. And God says, in the last days, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. 
I'll raise up its breaches, I'll wall up its rooms, so that all of mankind can seek the Lord. God says, I like your idea better than mine, let's do that again. And what's the idea? I like what we do out of friendship instead of what I told Moses to do out of slavery. And the book of Acts said this. It says, and David, looking to the future. How did David get permission to do that? Because he looked into the future and he saw a time when grace would allow everyone to worship. And he said, I'll take that for today. Are you with me? He obeyed the new covenant, which wasn't yet written. It was already in his heart. You know why? Because he was a friend. He was a friend. I no longer call you slaves because the slave does not know what his master's doing. He's just taking blood into the holy place, holy of holies every year. He don't know why. He's just doing it. But I call you friends. For all things I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. I'll finish with this story. Years ago, I called this lady out. It was the very first time I'd ever preached at Bethel, and it was really good. Not literally as long as this message, but it was really good. And I, at the end, I prophesied over about 10 people, and that was really good. It was just a good night. It was just one of those really good nights. And I called this last lady out. She was sitting to the very back of the, of the, uh, of the big church, and I gave her this amazing word. I honestly don't remember what it was. That night I went home, and, you know, for all of us preachers that, you know, when you do good, you're like, whoo, you know. And I was like, wow, I had never preached in a church before. So it was besides Weaverville. So... That's not a real church. So <laughs> I was literally laying in bed at night. I could still recall exactly where I was and exactly what I was thinking. And I was, and I was thinking to myself, of course I would never say this, but I was thinking, God, you are so lucky to have me. <laughs> now I understand why I'm alive and I am amazing. Thank you very much for all the gifts that you've given me. And I'm a gift to the world. And I know Billy will be calling me any day now. Graham, that is. And then the Lord interrupted my thoughts and he was laughing. And he said, that was a great word you gave that lady. That was a great word you gave that lady. And immediately, I, I, in my mind's eye, I knew he was talking about the last lady I prophesied over. And all of a sudden, I went from like, oh, I'm so amazing, to like, oh, no. And I said, did I give her that word, or did you? He said, no, you did. I said, Lord, I am so sorry. I, I said, I... I you know, and I just went from like, I am so amazing to like, I am a worm, oh my goodness. <laughs> now I'm a false prophet, you know. And this is before everybody on Facebook knew it. And I, I seriously was so like, anxiety just filled my soul. And I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. He says, oh, don't worry about that. Well, I'll take care of it. And I, I thought he was going to kill her. And I said, oh, Lord. <laughs> No, I'll take care of it. Let's kill her. I said, Lord, how will you take care of it? He said, oh, I'll just make it happen. Then he said this to me. What kind of friend would, would I be if we only did the things, what kind of friends would we be if we only did what I wanted to do? I never told anyone. I wouldn't tell Kathy because she'd go tell Bill. Like, oh, Chris did a false thing. 
And then I found this verse, and I'm ending with this verse right here. I found this verse about 10 years later. It says this. It says this. It's good. Oh, well, anyway. It's 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'm pretty sure. And it says, and God was with, yeah, here it is. No, it's 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13, verse 19. Thus Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. And the word, let none of his, it's small h. Let none of Samuel's words fail. <laughs> like I found a verse for my dysfunction. And the Lord was with Samuel, and that let none of Samuel's words fail. Would you stand? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you Let me be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let's raise it up. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul. Joy, my King, in what you hear, let me be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Let's do it more, one more time. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you time. Let me be a sweet, sweet sound in your... Let's sing in the spirit. Let 
When they prayed for Saul, when they prayed for Saul, when Ananias went and prayed for Saul in the New Testament, it says something like scales fell off his eyes and he could see. And I believe we're to pray for the scales that are on our eyes. That the Lord would open our eyes. I was thinking about that song that we sang so many years ago, Open My Eyes. I want to see Jesus. And I, I, I want to just pray that the Lord would literally take us into new dimensions. 
Maybe we would be one of the first generations to experience this since Moses. That we could ask anything. Because the Lord knows that we don't have a selfish heart. Self-promoting our, or watching over our heart, as Proverbs said, with all diligence. Lord, I pray for that each of our eyes, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. That the scales, the Saul experience would fall off our eyes. That we wouldn't be believers who see men as trees walking, but you would give us a second touch. Uh, this, uh, about a month ago, I had my eyes lasered and I had a, my left eye, I had cataract in my eye and I was sharing with Bill that I didn't know how bad it was until it was clear. My, I was literally, anytime there was light in my left eye, I was literally, was nearly blind, just saw everything through like, almost like a snowstorm. And then I, I was like, wow. And the other thing I was sharing with Bill is that I didn't realize it, but it was a source for a lot of anxiety because whenever I was in a lighted room, I couldn't see on my left side. And, and I just began to think about that maybe that's a prophetic act for this season, that the Lord would give us the left and the right eye, that we could see, that we wouldn't be blinded by the light, but that we'd actually see in the light. So Lord, I pray that over all of these sons and daughters, these fathers and mothers, that you would clear our eyes. That you would cause us to be able to see, to know and to understand that we would see things and know things and understand things. As you said in Ephesians 3, that you said that, that there would be a spirit of revelation on us, that we would teach principalities and powers, the things of God, the manifold wisdom of God. So why don't you just put your hand on your heart and just say, Lord, do it to me. You know, I feel like that we need to give the Lord permission. You know, this sounds weird to give the Lord permission, but this is how powerful the Lord gave us free will. That we need to give the Lord permission to actually search our hearts. And I... I, I want to reiterate that I, I'm not asking, I am not, and I don't think most of us should be asking the Lord if you find anything wicked in me. I, I think the Lord gave us a new heart. But he might find good things in there that are in the way of God things. And Lord, I pray for that for each of us. That wherever our motives have been skewed or, or, or warped or wherever we've gotten caught up with the ten spies and not listened to the two, wherever we've tried to fit in so badly that we stand out in your world like a sore thumb. Lord, help us to not follow the crowd. Help us to value the still, small voice, not the voice that's shouting to us how we should look and what we should say and what we should wear and how we should talk and where we should go and what's cool. Lord, let us be cool in, in the kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for very much for letting me go way over. God bless you guys.
I hope you enjoyed that message. You know this podcast exists to inspire you to walk in your royal identity in Christ and experience all of God's goodness in every area of your life. I want you to know God's abundance from the inside out. So just a quick reminder that one of the best ways to do this is by reading my newest book, Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. It's just released and now available for purchase wherever you buy your books. Check it out if you're tired of living with the never-enough mindset and want to move into experiencing the wealth of heaven regardless of your circumstances. Don't forget to let me know what you think. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a blessed day.